1996, Kelly Lane gave birth to a healthy baby girl named Tegan. After she left the hospital, she showed up at home without a baby. When a subsequent pregnancy uncovered Tegan's disappearance, the police initially thought this must be a custody issue, but it eventually became a homicide investigation. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. This is a part two of a two-part series, so be sure to go back and listen to part one before you start this one. To give a quick recap, Kelly Lane gave birth in 1995, 1996, and 1999. The first and third babies were placed for adoption. During the process of the last adoption, the baby from 1996, a little girl named Tegan, was discovered to be missing. Kelly gave multiple stories about where Tegan was, and initially the police believed this was an issue of not doing paperwork, things like registering the birth or having a private adoption finalized or getting custody papers. But when we left off in part one, the investigation into the whereabouts of Tegan Lane had broadened to include the possibility of homicide. And they brought a cadaver dog to Kelly's ex-boyfriend's house to search. They didn't find anything. I want to be clear that it isn't like they immediately decided at that point that this was a murder case and stopped looking for Tegan alive. They actually spent a lot more time trying to find any alive and well child who could be Tegan than they spent looking for evidence of a murder. They began by pulling records from New South Wales and then eventually across the country in the hopes they would find the little girl living somewhere with her father, a man who was named Andrew Norris or possibly Morris. That is what Kelly said happened, but the information Kelly had given in her two interviews with the police so far, one recorded and one not, just wasn't enough to find Tegan. So they sat down with Kelly Lane again on May 9th, 2003. Tegan would have been six and a half years old. Detective Gott tried to pin Kelly down on some of the lies and changing details, like the name of the father, how many times they came to see her or Tegan at the hospital, and other details, like how she told the hospital she was from Perth. Kelly admitted that she lied during the last adoption with her baby known in court records as AJ. Kelly admitted she said AJ was her first baby and he obviously was not. She said the reason she lied wasn't to cover up anything in regards to Tegan, but it was because she was afraid she wouldn't get help if they knew that this was her third baby and that she kept getting pregnant even though she wasn't raising any of these children. But denying Tegan existed wasn't the only story she told. After the social worker learned that Tegan had been born, Kelly then gave another story. She said that the baby was placed with a family in Perth. When asked about this story after she came out with the story about giving Tegan to the baby's father, 
Kelly claimed this wasn't a lie because she actually was referring to Andrew and his partner Mel when she mentioned this couple in Perth. That's who she was talking about. The only thing that doesn't make a whole lot of sense here is that Kelly's stories about Andrew did not include him being from Perth. In fact, she knew him in New South Wales. So at this point, was she saying that they took Tegan to Perth? Because that would be useful information. But then Kelly claimed she actually didn't know if they went to Perth. She didn't know where they went after the hospital. So then they asked if she had a reason to believe they were in Perth. And she said she actually wasn't sure where they went. So if the couple from Perth were Andrew and Mel... Why did she call them a couple in Perth when they weren't from there and she didn't know if they were going there? Kelly had also said she met the couple during her pregnancy and that they were supportive. That doesn't fit Andrew and Mel either, since obviously she knew Andrew before she got pregnant, and she also said he was not supportive. Detective Gott pushed more about this Perth connection. Why did Kelly bring Perth into this at all? And she really didn't have a good answer. She said she didn't think Andrew would stay in Sydney since it was embarrassing for him to have had a baby with someone else other than his partner. But she also said he never directly told her he was going to Perth. The Perth couple and Andrew and Mel, even as much as Kelly wants to claim that is the same story, It sounds like two different stories to me. And you may wonder why Kelly keeps bringing Perth up in various lies. She claimed to be from Perth multiple times. She claimed her family was there. Then she claimed Tegan was there with this couple. And it just kept coming up. My only guess here is that Perth is one of the largest cities in Australia, and it's the farthest away million-plus population city from Sydney. No one could really say, oh, I have friends out in Perth. Maybe you know them. Because it's just too big of a city for that, and it's too far away. Detective Gott eventually turned the conversation to someone else Kelly had mentioned, a woman named Lisa. This is a friend of Kelly's from college who Kelly said knew Andrew and might be able to get in touch with him. He asked Kelly if she thought this whole matter would be resolved if they could just talk to Lisa. Kelly said she hoped they wouldn't have to talk to Lisa. She thought they could just talk to Andrew, confirm the story, verify that Tegan is alive and well, and then they would move on without having to involve anyone else. What Kelly didn't know at this point was that they already talked to Lisa, and she told them that she didn't know anything about Kelly having a baby, and she didn't know Andrew Norris or Morris. She said she had only met Kelly's boyfriend, Duncan. And that wasn't all. Kelly had told Detective Gott that she could not help him get in touch with Lisa because they had lost contact over the years. That was a lie. Kelly and Lisa were in regular contact over the years, and Kelly had all of her contact information. When confronted with this, Kelly just pretty much repeated that she had hoped Lisa wouldn't need to be contacted. 
She assumed the police, with all of their investigative powers, would have been able to find Andrew by then. And there would have been no need to drag her family and friends into this. Kelly was confronted with the fact that the police knew she had told a number of lies, and they told her this matter was not going to go away until they established that Andrew even existed. Because if they could do that, they wouldn't need to talk to Kelly's family or friends who didn't know Andrew because they would be looking for Tegan with Andrew. They would be investigating him. Basically, the power to end this investigation into Kelly and to stop the exposure of her secrets was completely in her hands. If she had any information she was holding back or continuing to lie about, it was time to come out with it so they could find Andrew. But Kelly couldn't provide any more information to lead them to Andrew, though she did offer to go with them to look for Andrew's old apartment, which was in Balmain, and she said she had been to it. A week and a half after this interview, Kelly and Detective Gott went to Balmain, where Andrew had supposedly lived at the time Tegan was conceived. They drove around to find at least the apartment building, if not the actual apartment. Kelly pointed out an apartment block, but she wasn't sure exactly which apartment it was. She thought it was possibly either Unit 10 or 11. This was potentially a major lead because rental places leave a long paper trail. They could pull tenant leases and look for him. All of the apartments in that block were managed by the same company, so it wasn't like they were having to chase down multiple landlords. But no one named Andrew Morris or Andrew Norris had rented from that company. In the event Andrew used a fake name or was possibly subletting illegally from someone, they checked with the people whose names were on the leases back in 1996. The man who lived in apartment 10 didn't know either Andrew Morris or Norris, and he didn't know Kelly Lane. He also said he never received mail for anyone with those names. Initially, the resident of Unit 11, a man named Peter, said he did know an Andrew Morris, but that man was Asian, whereas Kelly had said that Tegan's father, Andrew, was white. Peter also didn't think that the Andrew he knew had ever been to his apartment, and he certainly hadn't lived there. Peter's story will change later, but we aren't there quite yet. Though the apartments didn't yield any leads, the search for Andrew and Tegan continued. They were looking for any clues that Tegan was alive and well out there. They checked birth records for Tegan and college records, traffic tickets, voter rolls, healthcare claims, postal records, and even immigration records for Andrew. They then checked missing persons report for anyone with their names or descriptions in case something had happened to Andrew and Tegan in the intervening years. Kelly had given them Andrew's birth year as 1966, and she said she was sure of it because she went out with him and some friends for his birthday. The investigators decided to expand this 
to include years 1960 through 1976, and they found that there were 41 men named Andrew Norris born during that time period in Australia. They tracked down as many of them as they could and provided them a picture of Kelly. Only one said she looked familiar. After giving him some more information, he did say that Kelly may have been someone he met in Newcastle one year and had a casual and brief sexual encounter with. But when they looked into the circumstances a little more, it seemed more likely that if he did meet Kelly, it was a year or so before she would have gotten pregnant with Tegan. And it wasn't even clear if the woman he vaguely remembered was even Kelly. If it was, you have to wonder if she pulled the name out of her memory years later, not realizing how far the police would eventually go to try to find Tegan. But like I said, this Andrew Norris may have never even met Kelly. He was just the only one who possibly did. And obviously, he didn't know anything about a pregnancy and never had Tegan in his custody. In January 2004, after having not had contact with Kelly in a few months, Detective Gott went to Kelly's home. This was not a recorded interview, so they tried not to talk about the case too much off the record. Kelly did express some annoyance that they had been contacting her friends about it. One friend called Kelly after being contacted by the police, and They said they were called about some missing baby and they didn't know anything about it, but they wanted to make sure Kelly knew the police were calling around about something. Kelly responded that she knew and that it was something that was between her, Duncan, Narelle, and Simon. Simon and Narelle were Duncan's brother and sister-in-law. The couple had issues with infertility and pregnancy loss. And this friend knew about that. So what they assumed Kelly was trying to say was that this may have been a surrogacy or adoption arrangement. This was the first time Simon and Narelle had been mentioned in relation to Tegan. So when the friend told the police about this conversation, they started looking into the couple. This was quickly ruled out as a possible lead. Tegan was never given to them, and like everyone else, they didn't even know she existed before the investigation started. And it does sound like they were, frankly, hurt that their private pain was being dragged into Kelly's lies. The police did run paternity tests on Kelly's two children who had been adopted out and learned that Duncan was not the father of either. There is no way to know with Tegan since they didn't have her DNA to compare. In late 2004, the case was forwarded on for a coronial inquest, which began in June 2005. Tegan Lane would have been nearly nine years old. At this point, Kelly was no longer speaking with the police and she had an attorney. The Manly police also made arrangements to forward the case on to the homicide team should Tegan's whereabouts not be determined by the end of 2005. By this point, of course, her family and close friends had learned about Tegan and even about 
the first baby referred to as TR in the documents. But Kelly seemed to hold on to some hope that some of this would remain private. And at the start of the inquest, that seemed like it might be possible because initially there was a non-publication order on this entire affair, and that included the inquest. The general public knew nothing. After all, if Tegan was alive and well and living with her father or some family in Perth, this was a custody issue, and minors are protected in those. Reporters were allowed to attend the inquest, but they could not run anything on it until that order was lifted. The coroner expressed reluctance in lifting the ban for a number of reasons. Tegan's privacy was, of course, top of the list. But the absolute circus he knew this would be was another. He explained to Kelly and her lawyer that he would have to lift the order if she could not provide more information about Tegan's whereabouts because they needed to start doing public pleas through the media for anyone who had information to come forward. Kelly conferred with her attorney during a 10-minute recess. And when they came back, Kelly's attorney said that she had already spoken with the police multiple times and gave them everything she knew. She couldn't give them more because she didn't have any more information. But he did say she and her family were eager that Tegan be found. And with that, the coroner had no choice but to lift the publication ban and appeal to the public. The media circus that everyone feared began, and it didn't let up for a long, long time. Kelly attended the inquest with her attorney, and her side questioned the police about the delay in looking for Tegan, hoping that this would show that the police really had not done enough to say for certain that Tegan wasn't out there somewhere. The adoption worker from AJ's adoption, Virginia Fung, testified that Kelly was very sweet with AJ and clearly grieved placing her baby for adoption. She said she didn't think Kelly was capable of harming a baby. Duncan also testified, and he had to give details about their sex life to explain how Kelly managed to hide a pregnancy even while they were intimate. Like, he had to go into details about sex positions with all eyes on him. Duncan did testify that he noticed Kelly's weight went up and down, but he didn't say anything because of how sensitive a subject that can be. He said he remembered one time when Kelly's father made a comment to her after she had seemingly lost weight, saying that she looked good, and then he told her not to go and put the weight back on. Kelly got flustered, but Duncan thought it was because her father had hurt her feelings. He didn't think it was because she had hidden a pregnancy. Duncan was asked about the wedding on the day Tegan and Kelly left the hospital. He said he hardly remembered it because it was from so long ago, 
nothing really stuck out about that night. Duncan also said he didn't know if he was Tegan's father, and he didn't know how to eliminate himself from suspicion of being involved. But he testified under oath that he truly did not know Kelly was pregnant, and he knew nothing about Tegan's birth. Kelly's attorney tried to show that the assumption that Kelly must have done something to Tegan wasn't completely supported by the evidence. For instance, during the inquest, the Daily Telegraph reported that Kelly had posted messages on a message board looking for Andrew Norris. Kelly's attorney said that this was evidence that Kelly did try to help find him. The Crown was making it look like Kelly did nothing because she knew there was no Andrew, yet here was evidence she did something. She at least posted on the internet about it. Kelly's attorney also told the court that Kelly's lies and her behavior were explained away by the shame she felt about her relationship with Andrew and with getting pregnant when she knew her family wouldn't approve. She wasn't trying to cover up murder, just a casual sexual relationship and a pregnancy. Her attorney said his belief was that Tegan was alive. Kelly was called to the stand, but her attorney already said she would not be answering any questions related to Tegan since it was clear she was the focus of the investigation. And like he promised, Kelly took the stand, stated her name, and then when the next question was, what happened to Tegan after you left the hospital? Kelly declined to answer. That was the end of that. There were a lot more witnesses called, many, many more. We're not going to get into all of it because we've covered most of what they contributed to the narrative in part one. The coronial inquest concluded in 2006. The coroner then laid out the evidence Tegan was alive, and it was mostly what hadn't been found, like Tegan's body or any forensic evidence of a murder. While there was no evidence Kelly gave Tegan to someone, it's also hard to prove a negative, so they couldn't say that she didn't, no matter how implausible it seemed. He also pointed out that Kelly had placed a child for adoption before Tegan, and then she placed another one for adoption after Tegan. So why would it be so unbelievable that she placed Tegan as well, even if she didn't do it legally? But then the coroner went over the evidence that Tegan was deceased. Again, it was the evidence not found. There was no record of Tegan's birth being registered, no record she received medical care after leaving the hospital, and she didn't appear to have ever been enrolled in school. He noted that Kelly gave multiple stories, including denying that Tegan even existed. If Kelly did give Tegan to her father, why lie about giving birth at all? Why not just say, oh yes, her father has custody? What's interesting to me is that if Kelly didn't keep disappearing on Virginia during AJ's adoption, or if she simply said her daughter was in the care of her father, it's unlikely Tegan's disappearance would ever have come to light. No one would have felt the need to pursue it because she most likely would have been taken at her word, which she had been the whole time otherwise. It's Kelly's actions that pushed this case forward. 
The coroner said that the final story Kelly settled on just didn't make sense. She said that Andrew was angry when she got pregnant and had no contact with Kelly until Tegan was born. But then he was suddenly and unconditionally prepared to take the baby, as was his partner, who had been cheated on. It didn't make sense that this happened without more conversation or planning. He also pointed out that there was no proof Andrew even existed. No one in Kelly's life at the time who testified, family, friends, water polo teammates, etc., knew anything about him. Due to the failed extensive searches looking for any record Tegan was alive, the coroner ruled that Tegan Lane was deceased. While there was an acknowledgement that Kelly had lied during the investigation, no charges were recommended at this time. He couldn't rule out the possibility that Tegan had died after leaving Kelly's care. The police were basically told, keep investigating, which is what they did. So let me highlight a few things they did to look for Tegan and Andrew, because at some point, this will come into question. Did they do enough? They looked for any Andrew Morris or Norris and any woman named Melinda, Melanie, Melissa, or any other Mel-like first name who had a female infant born in September 1996. They then looked at the hospital records for any infant birth that did not have a corresponding birth certificate. They went out about a year from Tegan's birth month, so they cast a wide net. They found 12,000 possible matches, and then they manually checked them back against the hospital records to account for things like misspelled names and juxtaposed dates. That narrowed it down to around 700 because they had epidemic levels of typos at the time. They then took that list and narrowed it down even more based on other factors like ethnicity and such. They finally had a list of nine babies, Tegan and eight others. They tracked down those other eight and ruled all of them out from being Tegan. They actually found a little girl named Tegan in Queensland with the same birthday, but a different spelling of her first name. The investigators didn't just pull her birth records. They also took her DNA. She was not Tegan Lane. When Kelly had Tegan, another woman delivered a stillborn girl at the same hospital. She was questioned under the idea that maybe she kidnapped Tegan in her grief, and for some reason, Kelly never mentioned it. It makes me sad for that mother that she had her trauma brought up again in this way, but of course, Tegan was not with her. They then checked for child doe cases in the event Tegan had died between the time Kelly left the hospital with her and present day and that her remains were found but unidentified. This also did not yield any results. They reached out to 9,000 primary schools across Australia since parents do have to present a birth certificate to enroll their children in school. A lot of schools don't make a copy of the birth certificate for their file. They just ask to see it. So this process was a lot more tedious than expected. 
they contacted everyone, even homeschool groups, to see if they had a little girl with a father named Andrew Morris or Norris and got nothing. They pulled vaccine records for any girl around the same age with either the name Tegan, a mother with Mel in her name, or a father named Andrew Norris or Morris, and they still had nothing. From the start of the investigation through the inquest and even after the inquest, they spent literally years on this. And we'd be here all day if I gave you every place they looked and every variation they looked for. Tegan was not found anywhere and neither was her father. The police also pulled taxi company records from the time to see if they could figure out who, if anyone, picked Kelly up at the hospital because she said she left the hospital in a cab. Pleas to the public through the media brought in tips, but none of these leads panned out. In August 2008, they did a large-scale dig at Duncan's old house, but found nothing. Using a list of exes of Kelly's, they DNA tested and found out that TR's father was a man Kelly saw briefly before dating Duncan, and AJ's father was a friend of Kelly's brother, who was someone she only dated briefly. Neither of them had any idea they had a child who was placed for adoption. And while that did clear up some questions about paternity, it really had nothing to do with where Tegan was. In the end, the homicide squad did not feel like they had enough to make an arrest. They had not found any evidence that Tegan was alive or that Andrew existed, But they also had no evidence that one, Tegan died, two, she was murdered, and three, she was murdered by Kelly Lane. So the police did not intend to lay charges. They referred the case to the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions, which is, from my understanding, the usual procedure. The DPP is not an investigative agency, but they can advise law enforcement, and they also have final say on whether to prosecute or not. It is uncommon for the office to charge people when the police do not recommend it. However, in this case, things went a little differently. On November 17, 2009, Kelly Lane was charged with four crimes. The most severe charge was the murder of two-day-old Tegan Lane. The other three charges were all related to lies Kelly swore to in her adoption affidavits, in the cases of TR and AJ's adoptions. Multiple people involved in the investigation of this case have since said they did not believe the case was ready for trial, even though that's where it was going. This trial was held from August to December 2010, and Tegan would have been 14 years old. This trial had to be pretty surreal, I imagine, when Kelly had kept all of these pregnancies secret and then ended up dragging everyone into it in the most public way possible. Duncan and his mother had to testify. Even the brother Kelly hinted to her friends had custody of the baby testified. They brought in her old friends and teammates. And then both of the men who were the fathers to TR and AJ came in. They both got choked up testifying about their relationships with Kelly and not knowing they had children. 
Between the inquest and the trial, Kelly did lose the support of some of her old friends. They couldn't believe she would ever hurt a child, but then when they heard what came out of the inquest and learned how much Kelly had lied to them, they started having questions. When you find out someone lied to you about some pretty serious things, it does make you question how well you really know them. And then when you add in the media and police pressure, it was too much for some, and they stepped away. At trial, the Crown's case relied heavily on the lies and inconsistencies of Kelly's story. All Kelly had to do was tell the truth about where Tegan was, and if the child was alive and well, the matter would have been settled. But over the course of the decade between AJ's adoption and the trial, Kelly would not or could not prove Tegan was alive. The Crown's position was that there was no reasonable explanation for this except that Tegan was dead and Kelly knew she was. The holes in the story painted the prosecution's picture. Why did Kelly give so many versions of the story? Why did it take her three to four hours from the hospital to get to her parents' house when it was only a 45-minute drive? Where was she during that time? What was she doing? Why didn't Andrew file any paperwork on Tegan since her birth? Why didn't he get her Medicare number added to his card so that he could get her medical treatment? If she was alive and well out there, where was she? The Crown also approached one of the coroner's concerns in his ruling. Kelly had adopted out the baby before Tegan, and then the baby after Tegan. So why not believe she did likewise with Tegan, even if it wasn't with documentation? And the Crown theorized that Kelly's first experience with adoption is why she didn't think it was an option the second time. When she placed TR for adoption, she didn't expect all of the probing questions about the father or that they would be doing their own looking into her background. She also had visits with TR while she was in foster care, which were very emotional for Kelly. She ended up lying at one point and saying she was playing sports overseas just as an excuse to skip visits. Kelly didn't realize how difficult an adoption would be. And that is when Kelly didn't have a deadline to wrap things up by. The Crown said that Kelly needed to have Tegan in time to be free to attend that wedding. She didn't want to be taken by surprise by going into labor spontaneously, and that's why she kept trying to get induced. If you remember when she went into labor with her first baby, TR, it was in a room full of friends and she had to sneak away. Not wanting that to happen again, she tried to get an early induction. And then when Kelly finally had Tegan, she knew she only had two days to meet with the social worker, the adoption agency, and just get things going before the wedding. She didn't think she could do it, and in the end, she left the hospital with only hours to spare. She took Tegan with her with the intention of figuring it out after. Kelly knew she could not show up at her parents' house with a baby out of nowhere. She was terrified of her father's response, and she was afraid 
of ruining her reputation as the golden child. The Crown couldn't say for sure what Kelly did after being pushed into that position, but they believed she murdered Tegan. They pointed out that there was an area of largely vacant land near the hospital, which to me seems like an overstep to mention because they found no evidence Tegan's body was there, and I don't really feel like the prosecution should just throw out theories that have nothing to back them up. But that's just my opinion. What do I know? So this is why the Crown said she couldn't do an adoption with Tegan and she simply didn't have time and she didn't want to go through the same process she went through with TR. So then why did she go through that process again with AJ? Well, the Crown said it's because she found the experience of killing Tegan to be worse than the experience of adopting out TR. She had tried to avoid the adoption by having an abortion, but she was too far along. So that is the Crown's explanation for how this woman, who by all reports appeared loving towards her babies, had killed one of them. Kelly's parents testified in court, and her mother was asked about some very specific details, like how Kelly had gotten to her house on the night of the wedding. After 14 years, those types of details are hard to recall. She really couldn't remember how Kelly arrived, if she took a cab, if someone dropped her off, or if she drove herself. All she remembered was that Kelly did come through the back door from the driveway, which she usually did if she drove herself. Both of Kelly's parents were confused when they were being asked about things like living in London, living in Perth, disowning Kelly, and various other lies Kelly had told. In all this time, Kelly hadn't come clean to her parents about all of the stories she told. But it had been over a decade, so Kelly may not have remembered everything she said when T.R. Tegan and A.J. were born. The Crown also presented 70 recorded telephone calls and eight tapes from other types of listening devices. While none of these recorded Kelly confessing to anything, it did reveal her discussing the investigation and saying things like how the police were grasping at straws. While the investigation did clearly bother Kelly, particularly since she didn't want her business out there, On these recordings, she stuck to her story about Andrew taking custody of Tegan. Kelly's defense was that the prosecution had failed to prove any of the elements required. They couldn't prove that Tegan was dead, how she died, or that it was intentional. They also argued that if Kelly had done something to Tegan, Why would she have gone back to Ride Hospital to have AJ when she knew she went there while pregnant with Tegan? If she had something nefarious to hide, why didn't she go to a hospital that would not have a record of Tegan? The defense also called this man named Peter to the stand. If you remember, he was one of the tenants at the apartments where Kelly said Andrew lived when Tegan was conceived. Peter had spoken with the police in December 2003 and then gave evidence at the inquest in June 2005. 
Neither of those times did he say he knew of an Andrew Morris or Norris living in the complex. But at trial, this story changed. Peter said that he actually remembered he did see mail addressed to Andrew Morris and to Andrew Norris, both to Unit 10, and he said it was at some point in 95 or 96. He said this memory came back to him after he first spoke with the police and before the inquest. The reason he didn't bring it up at the inquest was that he thought he might be wrong after hearing the evidence that there was no Andrew living there. His memory improving in the years since first speaking with the police does make me side-eye the statement. Not Peter's sincerity. I actually believe that he remembers what he says he remembers. I just think it is likely to be a false memory, and the Andrew Norris Morris name had been planted there when he was initially questioned by the police. Now, another angle that the defense used to attack the Crown's case was to claim that the police search for Tegan was deficient. The defense flagged about 150 possible children the police had ruled out, largely based on ethnicity. And the defense said they should have been followed up on. So there was a delay in trial so the police could do just that, and it wasn't always easy. One child that was pointed out in the book Nice Girl, which was a source for this episode, was living at a boarding school in North Queensland, and her mother lived on a tiny island off of Papua New Guinea. They had to follow up on her information and contact her mother, even though the likelihood that she was Tegan was nil. But it does show that for a nobody murder case, this one was especially difficult since the only proof of death was a lack of proof of life. And what linked Kelly to this is that they couldn't prove anyone else had Tegan in their care at any point. Of course, a big part of the Crown's case was that Kelly lied a lot. So there was some debate between the two sides and the judge over which, if any, of Kelly's lies could be presented to the jury as evidence of murder. The judge was hesitant to allow much leeway here, but in the end, he ruled that only the changing statements about where Tegan was could be framed that way. The couple in Perth, as well as the Andrews, Morris, and Norris, that was included. But everything else Kelly said about the other babies, about where she lived, about who the fathers were, and so on, was not allowed to be presented as evidence of Tegan's murder. So, of course, the Crown zeroed in on these stories that they were able to use as evidence, and they questioned the plausibility of Kelly's final answer on where Tegan was. We already talked about a few questions or holes in that story, but the Crown brought up another one I hadn't even thought about while researching this. Kelly said Andrew Norris was not happy about the pregnancy, but he not only agreed to take custody of the baby, but he did so without asking for a paternity test. He knew Kelly was in a relationship with someone else at the time, So why did he assume paternity and not get a test done first? Whether it was a DNA test, this was the mid-1990s, they were available at the time, 
and if not that, even just a blood taping test to show that it was likely or possible he was the father. He didn't do anything yet took custody of the child. That just doesn't make a lot of sense. The defense countered to the jury that the Crown didn't actually prove anything. Even the wedding the Crown insisted Kelly was so eager to get to that she killed her baby to be there wasn't particularly special to either Kelly or Duncan. Duncan hardly remembered the details because it was just another wedding of some friends, something that happens frequently when you're in your 20s. The defense said there were other possibilities that the Crown had not yet ruled out. Maybe Andrew didn't come forward because he decided not to raise Tegan and he had given her to someone else. Maybe Kelly was actually still lying about Andrew or, for some reason, concealing who she gave Tegan to. Maybe she didn't want to identify that person for whatever reason. Or maybe Andrew did have Tegan. And just because the police couldn't find them didn't mean they weren't out there. Andrew could have registered her birth using false information, whether that's a fake name for him, for Mel, or for Tegan. He could have even altered her birth date. In this regard, it wouldn't be unlike any case we've seen of infant abductions, where the child was raised by their abductor, and they don't realize it until they're an adult, and need paperwork they didn't have. The Crown did admit that their case was circumstantial, but insisted it proved murder. The defense said didn't even come close because they couldn't even prove Tegan was dead. The jury took the case, and in December 2010, they came back with a verdict on the charges related to Kelly lying on the adoption affidavits. They found her guilty on all three charges. That wasn't really a hotly debated part of this case since she did, in fact, lie on them. However, the jury said they were divided on the murder charge after eight days of deliberation. In New South Wales, if a judge does not think a unanimous verdict will occur, they can allow a majority verdict instead. This meant the jury only needed 11 jurors in agreement, not all 12. This keeps a lone holdout from hanging a jury. The jury then came back with a majority verdict. In an 11-to-1 split, they found Kelly guilty of murder. Kelly yelled no before collapsing. When she fell, she hit her head, making an audible bang, which then caused her mother to also call out. Kelly laid on the floor sobbing, and it was, according to the spectators, a very dramatic scene. The jury was dismissed while medics tended to Kelly, and they were brought back in after she was checked out and calmed down. Reporters in the courthouse noted that some of the jurors cried as they were thanked for their service and dismissed. At sentencing, the question of why came up, and there were attempts to explain it. Why did Kelly Lane, a young, successful athlete who, by literally all reports, loved and adored children, why did she take her baby out of the hospital only to kill her when she knew adoption was a possibility? At trial, the Crown proposed that she was trying to avoid the adoption process. 
But during sentencing, a psychiatrist named Dr. Diamond came in to testify for the Crown as to his opinion. He never interviewed Kelly and hadn't even met her. He was relying on her recorded interviews as well as statements from others about Kelly. He didn't have a lack of material to work with, but he did not have direct access to the person he was evaluating. Dr. Diamond's theory was interesting. He approached another question people had. If Kelly didn't want to raise a child, why did she get pregnant five times in seven years, even when she had a prescription for birth control pills? Dr. Diamond's answer to this question ties into the question of why Kelly killed Tegan. Dr. Diamond said that he believed Kelly struggled emotionally with her previous decisions to terminate two pregnancies when she was a teenager. So she had a strong desire to resolve that inner conflict, and the way to resolve it would be to be pregnant. That's why she kept getting pregnant. She wanted to resolve her previous issues by handling things better the next time around, to handle things correctly. Even though Kelly had a number of people she could turn to, she didn't feel she had anyone because of her shame and fear surrounding these pregnancies. She left the hospital with Tegan, having decided not to place the baby for adoption, possibly because of how long it took to get things settled with TR's adoption, or maybe because she wanted the baby. But then there she was. She had a baby no one knew about. She didn't think she could turn around and go back to the hospital and place the baby into care. But she also didn't think she could show up at home hours before a planned event with a baby she had hidden from everyone. According to Dr. Diamond, someone with more rational thinking would have found someone they could go to and get help. But Kelly couldn't come up with any other solution to her problem. I will say that there is an alternative theory I read to Dr. Diamond's idea that Kelly was trying to resolve inner conflict through pregnancy because it is possible to get pregnant on the pill. Getting pregnant five times while on the pill is unlikely. But if she was inconsistent about taking them, if she skipped doses occasionally, if she started a new pack late, or if during her partying phase she drank to the point of throwing up, the pills would have been less effective. Dr. Diamond wasn't the only doctor to testify. Kelly's family doctor, Dr. Thompson, also gave his opinion, and he had actually spoken with Kelly. Her parents called him in November 2004, as the investigation was ongoing and the inquest was coming up. Kelly was rather distraught at this time. Dr. Thompson spoke to Kelly, and she talked about the pressure from the police and the possible pressure from the media. Kelly actually backed up how Diamond had characterized her. She said she was young. She had a lot of expectations on her, expectations of behavior, expectations of success, but that she wasn't happy. She wanted something else in life, and she kept getting pregnant. Along the lines of what Dr. Diamond said, Kelly wanted the pregnancies and the babies. 
but raising children wasn't something she thought she could have at that time. Dr. Thompson said he asked Kelly directly if she killed Tegan, and she became emotional and said no, that she didn't do it, and she never could have done it. Also at sentencing, a number, dozens of character witnesses testified for Kelly, all saying she was a strong community member, she was someone who adored children, and that she was a wonderful mother to her nine-year-old daughter. No one could imagine her hurting a child. The judge, before handing down Kelly's sentence, acknowledged that Kelly was young when the crimes she was convicted of were committed. She was immature. She was conflicted about where her life was headed. The judge also said that the facts showed that Kelly was already rehabilitated and that her behavior in her 30s was a far cry from who she was in her late teens and her early 20s. She was a different person. She was a less troubled person. And he did not believe she was at risk of reoffending. The judge called it a tragic irony that Kelly had to face a lengthy period in prison in spite of everything she had done to become a better person since Tegan's birth and death. Kelly was first sentenced on the charges of swearing false statements, and she got nine months each on counts one and two and 12 months on the third count. For the murder of her infant daughter, Tegan Lane, Kelly was sentenced to 18 years with a non-parole period of 13 years and five months. With credit for time served, Kelly will be eligible for parole in May of 2023 or 2024, I see both of them reported pretty much equally, so I'm honestly not sure which, but her full sentence will expire in December 2028. Kelly did appeal the murder conviction, and it was heard in 2013, and to me, the most interesting issue they raised was that the jury should have been able to consider an alternative count of manslaughter. But the appellate court said that this was not a trial error because it was actually a defense strategy. Manslaughter was not part of the defense. The defense was, Kelly didn't do it. An ineffective defense strategy isn't something you can appeal on unless you can prove it was ineffective assistance of counsel because your attorney messed it up. But claiming innocence is a pretty standard defense. In the years since Kelly's conviction, there have been searches for Tegan's remains, but they have not been found. No Tegan Lane or Andrew Morris or Norris, no Mel, Melanie, Melody, none of them have come forward. But in spite of this, Kelly maintains her innocence, and she is not without her supporters. One of those is a cab driver who came forward in April 2011, saying that he picked Kelly and a newborn baby up at the hospital. As he drove her to Manly, she asked that he pull over. Kelly got out of the car with the baby, walked towards a wooded area, and then came back without the baby. She said she left the baby with a babysitter. When he dropped Kelly off at her destination, he noticed she left a diaper bag in the car. He told her she forgot the bag, and she said, I don't need it. The cab driver said he went back to that wooded area where he had pulled over to bring the diaper bag to the babysitter. 
He said he then found a baby girl bundled up with a bottle abandoned in the bush. While he was there, a woman came along and offered to take the baby, and he gave the baby to this woman. So he was basically saying that Kelly did abandon Tegan in the woods, but she was rescued by an unknown woman. Kelly has said this story is not true, and I have to admit, his story sounds less reasonable than Kelly's actual story of what happened. But besides him, Kelly does have a lot of people who straight out believe that she gave Tegan to Tegan's father. And in addition to those who believe Kelly is straight out innocent, she does have other supporters, those who aren't necessarily settled on guilt or innocence, but they don't believe she had a fair trial or that the verdict reached the bar of beyond a reasonable doubt. Kelly does have the assistance of the Bridge of Hope Innocence Initiative at RMIT University. When I talked about the trial, I mentioned the several recordings that were entered into evidence. Well, it turns out that these are not all the recordings. These actually represent a fraction of them. The 70 phone calls and eight tapes were taken from a much larger pile that was more like 1,900 calls and 100 tapes. Bridge of Hope is trying to get the other 2,000 recordings turned over. Just like we have Brady materials here in the U.S., Australia has a duty of disclosure. And in New South Wales, the rules are pretty broad. The duty is to turn over all possibly relevant materials to the defense. Now, these tapes could be nothing. They could be completely besides the point and irrelevant. They likely include things like phone calls about Kelly's daughter's school schedule or Kelly ordering takeout. But legal analysts, including the judge from Kelly's trial, have said they believe the tapes should be given to her appellate team. If they are not exculpatory, if they are truly not relevant to the defense, there should be no reason the Crown should care if they're heard by Kelly's legal representatives. And it could be argued that even if this is 2,000 recordings of Kelly ordering pizza, it would be relevant to the defense because they could have shown how little Kelly spoke about the case and how she actually wasn't worried because innocent people rarely think they'll be wrongfully convicted. This is the thing with turning over exculpatory evidence and relevant materials. There is no third-party arbitrator who looks over all of the evidence and then decides what falls under duty of disclosure and what doesn't. It's up to the prosecution to be honest about it. And, well, we've seen how that goes sometimes. Go back to my Barbara Gibbons episode. Peter Riley was almost sent to prison for life. But for the chance circumstance of the prosecutor dropping dead and a hidden alibi statement being found. If you want to know more about the Kelly Lane case, there is a documentary series called Exposed, which leans towards the need for a new investigation and, from what I have heard, crosses into innocence. I wouldn't know because I couldn't find a way to watch it here in the U.S. I wish I could because it sounds like they uncovered some more evidence that hadn't been turned over to the defense. 
including internal police communications about one of the prosecution witnesses being obsessive and unreasonable in regards to the case. The ABC also found that there were three covert operations that yielded even more recordings. Like I said, if it's not relevant and it's all just chit-chat, it probably doesn't need to be sent to the defense. But the ABC obtained an internal police memo discussing two of these operations that explicitly states there's relevant information on the recordings. The memo even said it should be presented as evidence, but according to the ABC, it wasn't. And for some balance, there was a podcast called Problem Child a few years ago that I had listened to about this case, and I know that leans towards Kelly being guilty. I couldn't find it in my podcast app, unfortunately, so it looks like it's been taken down, but there may be clips out there or it's been re-uploaded somewhere else on the internet. So we have exposed on one hand going towards the trial was unfair and also possibly claims of innocence, and we have problem child leaning towards guilty. If you can find either one and you want to hear their side of it, I would definitely check those out. As for Kelly, she has said Tegan is an adult now. She would be 25 years old currently, and maybe with the publicity around the case, she will hear about it and the pieces will click. Her name may have been changed, and she may not have been told the truth about her birth. But again, like children who are kidnapped as infants and raised by their abductors, the holes and gaps in her life story might trigger something, and she'll get online and look for more information. That is, if Tegan Lane is alive. I was asked by listeners to start marking my episodes in the description box, whether they are solved or unsolved, because I do have listeners who have a preference or need to be in the right headspace before they jump into an unsolved case. But in this case, I'm not going to mark it as either. I'm going to label it disputed, because every step of this case, from Kelly Lane's character to her choices, to Tegan's disappearance, to the fairness of the trial. All of it, start to finish, can be summed up with that one word, disputed. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.